0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who fear the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. I preached to you this morning from the Word of our God as you find it in the second half of the Gospel of John, chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. A couple of weeks ago we looked at the first 11 verses of John 2. Let us, this morning, turn our attention to the verses 12 to 25. And there the Apostle John writes under the guidance of the Spirit, After this he, meaning Jesus, went down to Capernaum, With his mother and brothers and his disciples, there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Beloved well, congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, if... You ever have an opportunity to travel to Jerusalem? One of the places that you need to visit is a place called the Temple Institute. What's so interesting about the Temple Institute? Well, in the building where this Institute are housed, you will find exact replicas of various items that were in the ancient temple. Things like the altar, the candle stand, the table of showbread, the robe of the high priest, and so forth. And as such, these faithful replicas and reproductions will give you a new kind of insight into the temple as well as into its contents. It will also deepen your understanding of biblical truth and worship. In short, it's worth your while to visit this institute, which in many ways appears to be a kind of museum. Only, beloved, it's much more than a museum, for you see the people who have financed and stocked this particular institute are also on a mission. And what they are really after is the building, the restoration of the ancient Old Testament temple. Their goal is to erect temple number three. You remember there was the temple of Solomon. There was the temple started by Zerubbabel and finished off and completed by King Herod. And now these people want to see the rise of the third temple. However, there is a problem, a major problem, for the actual site of the temple is now occupied. And it's occupied by one of the holiest shrines of the Islam religion, the Dome of the Rock. So if the temple is going to be rebuilt, the Dome of the Rock first has to be demolished. And you know, it's considered so holy and so sacred that its willful destruction would unleash a war the likes of which we have never ever seen in the Middle East. So the Dome of the Rock remains but the supporters of the Temple Institute keep on working, building more replicas, raising more funds, doing more research as well as praying. They are praying for divine intervention. They are hoping desperately that in one way or another, God will get rid of the Dome of the Rock and that the way will be cleared miraculously for the rebuilding of the temple. Yes, and in different parts of the world, these Jews are not the only ones who are hoping and praying for this, for you need to understand there are also those who call themselves Christians who are doing the same. Some, especially of the dispensationalist, premillennialist orientation, are eager for this to happen as well. For you see, they believe that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will return to the Mount of Olives. He will take his seat in the temple The sacrifices will be reconstituted. The priesthood will make a comeback. All of that Old Testament stuff will, in other words, be back with a vengeance. Well, that's interesting, but The question, of course, for us is, is this true? Should we, too, be hoping and praying for temple number three? Will Jesus, when he comes back, will he bring all of this Old Testament stuff with him? And will he really reign from the temple, the third temple in Jerusalem? What are we to make of this? Well, beloved, let's try to get some added insights from the Holy Word of God. This morning I preached to you on the theme from Wedding Transformer to Temple Reformer. And we're going to look at the Temple Reformer's shocking action, surprising sign, and startling insight. So those three things. We'll look at the shocking action of the Temple Reformer at his surprising sign, as well as his startling insight. Well, you know, beloved, in a way, the contrast in this particular chapter in John's Gospel could not be more extreme. Last time in John 2, the verses 1 to 11, we were introduced to Jesus, the wedding guests, and the wine maker extraordinaire. As we noted then, Jesus made wine, really, really great wine, and He made it by the gallons and the barrels full. Wine, the stuff of joy and celebration, was miraculously and copiously produced by Him. And it served to highlight the fact that His kingdom, when it comes in all of its fullness, will be a kingdom of great joy, of real peace, and a tremendous celebration. Now, having been told all of that, we turn to the next incident in the Gospel of John. And, and, you know, we rightly expect much of the same kind of thing. We expect more joy to follow. We expect more words and signs of celebration. Only that's not the way it turns out. For look, after Cana, Jesus goes back to Capernaum with his mother and his disciples, and he stays there for a few days. And after those few days, he sets out again. And where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem. He goes because it is just about time for the Passover feast. And in preparation for the feast, he goes to the temple. And we assume more joy is coming. But are we ever wrong? For what happens next is not more celebration, but fireworks. Read the verses 14 and 15. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle, he he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You notice how the meek and the mild Jesus of Cana has become the new angry and violent Jesus of Jerusalem. A wedding puts him in a generous mood. A Passover about to happen puts him in a foul mood indeed. So why there's drastic change? What's going on here? Well, obviously, you can see it has everything to do with what is happening in the temple. And it has to do with what is occurring there. we need to realize that Jesus is not simply riled up because of these animal hawkers and, and money changers. He realizes that for the temple to operate properly, both of these are necessary. You cannot expect people who come from a long distance to drag half their farm and their barnyard behind them. They need to be able to buy sacrificial animals locally. And neither can you allow Roman coins with the image of the emperor to be used in the temple precinct. And so you need money changers as well. So, beloved, our Lord is not against animal merchants or money changers per se. No more than anything else, what bothers him is where they're doing this. Instead of doing it where they used to do it, on the other side of the Kidron Valley, they are now doing it in the temple proper. And as a matter of fact, they are doing it in one of the courts of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. Is it perhaps sending a signal that the Gentiles don't matter anyway? Anyway. So we might as well take this space reserved for them and put it to good and profitable use. But the result, the result, beloved, is that no one can pray properly with this zoo in the background. And no one can worship devoutly with all of this money bickering going on behind it. In sure, there is no way for proper, reverent, holy worship to take place in the temple. There's no longer any quiet dignity here. There is no respectful worship possible. There is no reverence, period. It's a bleating, bargaining, bickering catastrophe. And so what does our Savior do? He improvises and he makes a whip. Temples aren't allowed in the temple precinct. And then he proceeds to clean house. He drives out the sheep and the cattle. He overturns the money tables. He chases away the merchants and the money changers. Yes, and as he does so, He makes it plain why he is doing this. He says, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a mock In addition, you'll notice his disciples recall a fitting Old Testament scripture passage. It comes from Psalm 69, verse 9, and reads, Zeal for your house will consume me. And in addition, it also calls to mind what we have just read together from Malachi 3, to the effect that suddenly the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple when he comes, how will he come? Malachi answers that question too when he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He'll be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. So what do we have here? We have the Lord... Of the temple coming to the temple of the Lord. We have the divine son entering into the father's great house. And what he sees there appalls him. It makes him angry. It provokes his zeal. It unleashes his fury. This is not how my father is to be worshipped. You see, beloved, his indignation is all about his father and what the Jewish leaders and the people are doing to his father's great and glorious name. They're insulting it by their corrupt worship. They're maligning it. They're degrading it. And he cannot tolerate that. A holy reaction is called for. And you know, it's the kind of reaction that should also kind of make us stop and sink and reflect on how we react even today to the abuse of the Father's name. After all, I remind you, His Father is our Father too. And His worship should be among our deepest concerns as well. But is it, is it really I think that by and large, many people today turn a blind eye to how the Father is worshipped. They merely shrug their shoulders when it comes to all kinds of abuses of worship. And they say, worship is optional, worship is individual, worship is about my needs being met. Worship is to be dramatic and exciting and meaningful so almost everything and anything goes. You say, today, worship is all about me. It has to appeal to me. It has to excite me. It has to touch me and thrill me. Never mind what it's like as long as I can walk out of church three feet above the ground, it's gotta do something to me. My well, beloved, is that in the first place what our text indicates? Wouldn't our text indicate that such a perspective of worship is utterly and totally wrong? Because worship says the scriptures and worship the Lord Jesus is indicating here is not in the first place about you and I and all of our needs, as important as they may be. But he's reminding us that first of all it's about the Father. It's about Him and the glory of His name. It's about Him and His praise. It's about Him and His holiness. And, beloved, that's foundational. If anything, we need to grasp this and we need to get it right. For if we don't, then you can be sure the displeasure of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will just as much be upon us as it was upon those Jews long ago in the temple. He's saying, worshiping my Father is not a casual, optional, indifferent, individual affair. It's not about what thrills me or chills me. True worship is the lifeblood of God's people. It represents our greatest aim in life, our highest calling. Therefore we need to get it right. We need to ask ourselves every time we gather together again, is this really pleasing and honoring to our Father in heaven? Is my heart really seeking Him? Is His Word really being expounded? Is His holiness and honor being increased? We need to get it biblically right. But did Jesus get it right? Notice no sinner has he cleansed the temple and the temple authorities as expected are in his face. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Interestingly, they... Don't summon the temple guard and say, arrest that man. Somehow his whole demeanor, his whole bearing, as well as his words, make them cautious. They sense this is no ordinary man. So what to do? Well, they, they ask for a sign. They, they demand to see a miraculous sign as his authorization for creating bedlam in the temple. But notice Jesus gives them no immediate, handy, easy to understand sign. He doesn't do signs on demand. But still he does give them something. He gives them a future sign to think about. And you know, it's it's actually a huge surprising sign at that. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. You gotta be in Jerusalem, you gotta be a Jew to understand. The full impact of what that means. Destroy this huge temple. And I'll raise it all again in just three days. Now that stumps them. They don't know what to make of it, so they, they dwell on, on the obvious. You know, it took 46 years to build this temple. So how in the world are you going to rebuild it again in three days? Impossible, absurd, ridiculous. Jesus is mad. But he's not mad. The problem is they're so mad at him that they can't even sing straight and think it's true. He's not speaking about rebuilding their physical temple in Jerusalem in three days. No, he's not claiming that he can build faster than Zerubbabel or can rebuild better than King Herod. No, he's speaking about another temple. A better temple, a superior temple. A final temple. A different kind of temple. Our text says that it took his disciples some time to figure this out. But that eventually, they got it. In the end, they realized that he was not speaking about a temple of stone, but he was speaking about his body as a temple. After Easter, after he was raised from the dead, it says they they believed the scriptures and they understood all the light suddenly went on. And they finally grasped that a whole new temple had been built before their very eyes. Now, all of this may well leave you wondering and asking how can Jesus claim to be a temple, much less a better. New era, final temple. And isn't that an absurd statement to make? Well, not really. For for what is the temple but a place to worship God? What is the temple but a place of sacrifice? The altar and what happens on it represents the heart and the soul of the temple. And also, what is the temple but a place of Reconciliation. Sure, the temple is all about worship, sacrifice, forgiveness, reconciliation. And all of that is every day being depicted by all of those cows and sheep being sacrificed and those rivers of blood. But now, here in the fullness of time comes Jesus. And what does he do? Does he drag a sheep into the temple? No. Ultimately, he drags himself. He offers up himself. He gives his body over to death. His blood is shed. And the result, his one sacrifice makes all of the difference in the world. It atones for the sins of the whole world. His death becomes the death of deaths. His blood makes the final payment. His sacrifice makes the temple, as it has always been known and understood, to be obsolete. Why else was the curtain torn from top to bottom? The Old Testament has lost its significance and its importance. has forever been fulfilled and surpassed. The death of Christ Jesus has set it aside. And when you know that's something that those people who are running and funding the Temple Institute should realize as well. Their mission is today a needless, utterly needless, useless enterprise. The whole idea of rebuilding the temple, of bringing back the sacrifices, of recalling the priests, of getting rid of the dome of the rock is based on a colossal error. How does one get to God the Father today? It's not through the blood of bulls and goats any longer. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice has opened for us, the letter to the Hebrews says, a new and living way through the curtain that means into the presence of God. Read this letter of Hebrews over and over and you cannot fail to see as clearly and gloriously. Jesus Christ has come and constructed a new and better way for all who believe in Him. His temple is infinitely superior. And so, beloved, as you worship today, realize that you need great zeal for the Father's name, but you also need great faith in the Father's Son. You know, it strikes me when people today are asked why God, if they die, should let them into heaven, they will invariably point the finger at themselves and they'll say, Oh, I've lived a good life. I've been a good person. I've been mindful of the needs of other people. And so on, and so on. God should let me in because I'm so nice. I've earned it. Open the doors. What utter nonsense and colossal stupidity. It's not about me says the Gospel. It's about Jesus. Only Jesus prepares our way. Only Jesus Christ pays for our way. Only Jesus Christ opens up the way. His death has done what no one and nothing else could do. And if our faith is not directed in him and grounded in him, it is a faith that is setting itself up for the greatest and the deepest disappointment possible. If you think you can march into heaven on the basis of your own works, watch out. You go in there only on the basis of the works of Jesus Christ. He's the new temple. And we always need to go through him to the Father. Yes, and beloved, to confirm that this is all about Jesus and not about us, note as well the last words of our text. Look at the verses 23 to 25. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He didn't need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. Those are rather astonishing and startling words, I would say. And they're warning words as well. They shout out to us, Do not trust in any man. Do not place your confidence in any human being. Not in any philosopher called Aristotle, not in any politician called Obama. And for that matter, not in any pastor called Bradenhoff or Vischer either. And why not? Because we're all flawed men. We're all imperfect. We all have feet of clay. And Jesus knows this better than anyone else. He sees what none of us can see. He can x-ray your heart better than any x-ray machine. He can image your brain better than any MRI. And what he sees there isn't nice. It's not good. It's not trustworthy. It's it's not noble. It's not perfectly holy or just or righteous. Righteous. There is no refuge in man. Now, only God provides us with a true refuge. And he's chosen to do it and to give it to us in his Son. Only Jesus... Is able to issue what comes across, if you think of it, as an utterly ridiculous, conceited, overbearing, presumptuous invitation. And make it stick. Only he can truly say, come to me. All you who are weary, and bird it. And I, I will give you rest. No one else in all the world, in all of history, can say that and make it happen so, beloved, go to the great temple reformer, Jesus Christ. In him alone, you'll find your rest. In him, you'll find the Father. And in him, you'll find peace and life and glory unimaginable. Amen.